Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a special guest with me today, Noel Maring, who is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and is a frequent contributor to National Catholic Register, The American Mind, The Federalist, and Catholic World Report. She's an editor for theologyofhome.com. She lives with her husband and her six children in Southern California. And she is the author of a book, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Noelle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. I have your book here for those watching on video. They can see the cover here. This is a great book. It's a little over, I think, 200 pages goes over the cult of progressive ideology. And I think that's a really apt aspect of the subtitle, which we'll get into. And before we begin our conversation, you know, for those watching or listening with kids maybe around, we might be talking about some sensitive topics is want to happen when we talk about woke culture and some of the agenda behind what's going on in our culture today. So there might be some sensitive discussion topics depending on where the conversation goes. So be slightly advised (laughs) for those of you listening. This is a conversation that I've been wanting to have and it's going to be part of a series called Critical Conversations where we discuss critical theory, identity, politics, and woke or wokeism. I don't even know how to, you know, grammatically put that word into anything, Noel, but when you hear the word woke and when you describe it for people, how is it that you tend to describe what woke means? Yeah, no, it's a kind of a neologism, so it's hard to you know <laughs> use it in casual conversation. But I think the most kind of widely acceptable definition would be that it's the state of raising your consciousness to being aware of the systemic layers of oppression in society along the lines of race, gender, sexuality, feminism. Yeah. I think it goes far beyond just raising an awareness, although I think that is an essential part. I think it's a reformulation of a utopian ideology that is most commonly attributed to Karl Marx, but broadening it beyond economics into sexuality and division of the sexes and destruction of the sexes, Uh but then also a neo-Freudianism. So that's where kind of this sexual liberation element comes in, that part of our liberation is not just to free ourselves from oppressive groups outside of ourselves, but from our own internal need to repress ourselves. And then there's a healthy dose of postmodernism in there, weaponizing of language, destruction of common unifying narratives, history, all that. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in there. And, you know, on the everyday street language, it seems like the idea of being woke is simply, you know, that first thing about just being aware being conscious of things going on, you know, in the world that are oppressive, right? And on the surface, it doesn't seem like that's such a bad thing. And I think in some ways, it's like, well, if that's all, as far as it goes, I kind of think I can kind of go along with what it means to be woke, like be aware and, you know, aware of injustices. I mean, aren't Christians supposed to be aware of injustices? For the average person, what would you need them to know or want them to know about what's actually kind of happening? What's the current in this large river yeah. doing to them? It's a good question. I, I think that exactly how you framed it is why it's so compelling, right? Because it sounds like something that every good-willed person should be aligning himself or herself with. And especially as Christians, we're supposed to be people who walk with people who are suffering, walk with the people on the margins, you know, that we're accompanying them and and fighting for them in our daily life. So I think that that's why it's, you know, part of its 
the compelling nature of it, that there's some truth there, that there are true sufferings and there are true injustices mm-hmm. with people with compassion. But what I think is actually happening is that this is not a political movement or a movement about justice. I think it's an all-encompassing totalitarian movement. It seeks to become its own religion by reducing all of the world into a political state. So it's both reductive and totalizing in that way. And so I think, you know, it's not prescribing sort of like a political path. It's actually answering really fundamental questions. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? Mm. What ought the dynamic between man and woman look like? Is there a fundamental power struggle at the core of every institution, relationship, interaction, you know, event? And they would say, yes, you know, there is a power dynamic in everything, you know. So it really ends up being corrosive, I think, for one thing, in our friendships and relationships, but also corrosive in our understanding of who we are just on our own. So it's destabilizing us, I think, as people, as friends, as a community, and as individuals. So I think that's why we have to be aware of it and resisting it, because I think if we're not getting out in front of answering fundamental questions, you know, as Christians and making sure that we understand why those questions are important and how we actually should be thinking about that in accord with reality, then someone else is answering them. And they're answering in a way that serves a really powerful, oppressive ideology that will eventually kind of replace Christianity, I think, in minds and hearts of the adherents, the more that the church continues to embrace all of this. And I think a lot of Christians are, you know, more and more embracing this. Yeah, there's a connection in my mind to the revolutionary nature of the gospel in the sense that it can upend power structures. And there is the prophetic voice that we see throughout scripture where it speaks truth to power and that you you demonstrate, you know, the gospel is all about demonstrating love. Now, I don't think wokeism is much about demonstrating love, but I think the church is sort of latched on to many in the church, I should say, the progressive left in the church has latched onto something that they see as maybe just another philosophical tool in a toolkit of like, here's how we engage the culture, or here's how we can speak truth to power in this particular, you know, element. When I went to seminary, one of the, I would say, benefits of studying postmodernity, and at the time there was this, you know, the emergent church was kind of happening at least that was the buzzword talking about it, you know, this missional postmodern sort of church and like, what do we do in this sort of postmodern world? And this was about a decade, decade and a half ago. And I feel like the one critique that postmodernism has is that constructing languages about power games was actually in some ways useful because it helped me to understand when people use words, they're using them in certain ways and they may or may not be aware that they're weaponizing them. And I always thought that that was a really good way to critique people who are interested in power and who use sort of euphemistic language or Orwellian language to sort of do this. But I think I'm sort of realizing in the past year that like that was part of the point. It was like, hey, we know that language can create power dynamics and we can actually use language to be dominant instead of just using it as a critique for saying, hey, hold on, you know, the power you're seeking through, you know, whatever hegemony or whatever it might be that they're critiquing is actually, you know, part of like a genuine critique. I don't know if you found that to be like, hey, they saw something like insightful and they're like, hey, let's seize this. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's always going to be something true there. Like I resonate with when you're saying that, you know, there's a upending of power structures and that's in the Christian story. And also in, you know, he will trample the rich and raise up the lowly and, you know, all these reversals and Christ even coming as a servant leader. Mm-hmm. It's similar with the words, you know, you, there can be an analytical tool that can be useful. I think the difference is, is that the shift to language, you know, that the postmodernists introduced 
was reflected something that was an eradication fundamentally of meaning. So I think like a correspondence theory of truth, Mm. we look at the world and we're trying to receive being, receive the world as it is, and then correspond our minds towards what is real and what is truly true, objectively so. And the reversal of the postmodernists is that we are not actually trying to receive the world, we're trying to change the world. We don't receive being, we try to change being. And so language is a tool for actually changing what things mean. And, you know, that's mm. why we see like pronouns being so powerful right now that you can actually change reality by getting everyone to change their words. And this reflects, you know, kind of a very atheistic origin, which is that we've eliminated the creator. So now we become self-creators, right? That we can spin out from ourselves through our will yeah. and through our inner desires, a whole identity, reality, and ontology that is not corresponding to anything other than our ideas or our will. So I think that's where it ceases to be something that like serves a point of utility, but actually becomes like a whole philosophy that has a, a whole metaphysics written into it. Yeah, I feel like the people that I know who look favorably upon critical race theory and this whole idea of being woke, it's almost as if they're rebelling against the anti-PC culture of maybe the 90s and so forth that a lot of conservative Christians and more family-oriented Christians were we're all about. And it's like, hey, hold on. It's okay to be nice to people. And it's okay to sort of like treat people with respect. And then it just sort of has swung to this far level of like, well, we have to really go out of our way and make everybody adapt to sort of this experience. My wife was insightful when we were discussing this. And she's saying that basically what's happening here is people are using the militant. We'll talk about the types of people who are in this sort of movement. But the militant true believers are the ones who are taking something that pulls at our heartstrings and weaponizes it against us and sort of makes it impossible for us to actually genuinely respond in true justice. So, you know, one thing that your book actually kind of helped me realize was that this is more than just a culture war situation. You talk about it being attack on truth and meaning. I feel like your book is the first one that I've come across. And I've read about, I would say, half a dozen books sort of addressing this topic from an outsider's perspective, not just describing it or not just sort of, you know, lambasting it and just sort of pointing out every single problem, but sort of analyzing it from a Christian perspective that I have felt was rooted in something really deep and meaningful and could be called a sacred tradition. And I know that you're Catholic, and it seems that there's something really, really deeply rooted there. So I don't know if you want to describe that and what that is for you. I mean, maybe it's as simple as saying it's your faith. But if you could describe that a little bit, because there was something different about your approach to this that is more than just an analysis. There was something very, very grounded. Hmm. Thank you. I've never, I've not heard, that's a, I've enjoyed the hearing that. That's a great response. Um, I tried to develop it on three different levels. One kind of like a broad, natural, knowable, accessible to anyone just on the basis of human reason. Secondly, common Christian levels so that, you know, all believers, Catholic or not, would be able to agree with certain, the Mm -hmm. standpoint. But then thirdly, I do have a Catholic theme throughout. It's it's the way I see the world, obviously. It's like that C.S. Lewis quote, I see all things through the sun. You know, I see I don't see the sun. I see the world through the the, the vehicle of the sun. Or the, yeah, right. Or through the sun. So, so I, I don't know if we're grounded. I think that one of the, I think, hallmarks of trying to be a really truly Catholic thinker is that we are taking all of reality and not any non-ideologue. I don't mean this exclusively Catholic, but I think the Catholics really focus on this, trying to think of the whole of reality. So philosophical reality, scientific reality, anthropological reality, you know, natural law. And so that 
all those things really ground you, I think, deeply in the physical world, the concrete world. It's a really incarnational mm-hmm. view of the world. And yeah. perhaps maybe that's what you're pointing to is that there winds up being a real cohesion, I think, from that perspective where all these things sort of can be analyzed together. And it's interesting, I didn't start out writing the book, obviously, from a religious perspective at all. I thought I was just going to try to write a book about the woke movement. And the more I started reading about it, there are so many ways in which it is so brilliantly oriented to systematically destroy unity, love, goodness, rupture people, divide people. It's so almost brilliant in its effectiveness in the way that it comes together to do that so deeply that I increasingly started seeing it as utterly a spiritual battle, you know, or first and foremost, not only a spiritual battle, but first and foremost, a spiritual battle. So I wound up just saying, I'm just going to lean into this perspective. And that's why even just having the subtitle of Christian response, that was not something I originally thought to do. But I think it also kind of just speaks into kind of the niche in which I'm analyzing it from, which is overtly as a Christian person. Yeah, well, I think the movement itself is characterized in an antithetical way to religion. Well, I shouldn't say religion. It is a religion in a very almost obvious way. Like people who aren't religious have pointed this and said, this looks like a religion. It's anti-Christian in that it sort of, in so many ways, has its own doctrine of original sin. It has its own, it doesn't really have atonement, which is maybe part of the problem. But there's so many elements that are counter to the Christian narrative, counter to what it means to be a Christian, that it's almost impossible if you're a Christian to address it without doing so. I mean, you kind of just describe that. It's like, well, you know, I'm going to have to address this from a Christian perspective the characteristics of this movement are such that it's almost as if you hear people say nice things about like being woke and being nice, which we've already mentioned here. And it's like, if somebody were to describe, well, you know, all religions are the same, just be nice to each other and, you know, be peaceful and worship God. It's like, well, no, there's more to it than that. And I think that's something that you and I seem to already know is like, there's more to this movement. And there's something that it is deeply rooted in to bring it back to being rooted in something very old, so to speak. I want to talk a little bit about, or I want you to talk a little bit about the origins of this movement. This isn't just something that came out of the last decade. This is not a, you know, contrary to the way that, you know, many on the right might see this, this was not a legacy of the Clinton administration or the Obama administration or something, you know, silly or or more recent like that. This goes back about 100 years, if not a little bit further. So I don't know where you tend to start when you um, you know talk about the history. We could go back to Hegel. We could go with Marx. I'll, I'll let you start that and we can maybe discuss a little bit of it. Sure, yeah. No, I, mean, I started with original sin, actually, the fall of man. But no, and it, 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 it's, uh, yeah, I think that the most obvious starting place is with Marx and then you have to incorporate Hegel because of how influential Hegel was. So without getting yeah. esoteric, I feel like the interesting things to know about Hegel and how he influenced Marx was just this idea that, you know, society is like an organism progressing and self-developing through time into this perfect end when all of conflicts will be worn out and fought through and resolved and synthesized and will arrive at perfect peace. And what it does is, you know, reduces any possibility of having a limiting principle. I think if you believe in this, if you believe, you know, we have to keep progressing and Every time we go through this Hegelian dialectic of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and then again and again and again, that you are constantly improving on what you had before. So ironically, for being a historical dialectic, creates this hatred of history, right? That there's nothing you can learn from the people who came before you. You have, by nature of dialectic, progressed beyond them. 
And I think that you even see that play out in the destruction of statues, the reimagining of history, the sort of hatred of ancestry or disdain of, of that. So Marx was very, really affected by that, but he was a strict materialist, so he applies this dialectic and mm-hmm. conflict theory strictly to economics. And he identifies... The yeah. Main- can, I, can I... Yeah. I want to ask you a question about the dialectic because this has actually been a, a point of... And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably appear naive and, maybe, and it's genuine, actually. Understanding Hegel and the problems with Hegel has been a little bit confusing for me. And one thing you just said about hatred of history, and I, I didn't know that that was sort of maybe part of what the dialectic is. So again, on a base level, on an introductory level, what often you know you see is something like, oh, well, we have knowledge now, and then there's this, so that's our, I guess, thesis, and then you have antithesis, and then you have synthesis, which is sort of the Hegelian model, I suppose. And maybe I don't understand it as well as I think I do. But it doesn't seem like that in and of itself is very dangerous, because isn't that how we learn knowledge? Like we have a knowledge that we currently have and we come across something that seems to contradict it and we work that out in tension. Or is this something a little bit more about political movements? Is this more about this idea of being progressive as in like history just constantly progresses? Because even then, there's a part of me that's like, well, there's a lot of post-millennialists and amillennialists in the Christian tradition that sort of see eschatologically that things will eventually get better over a long period of time. And so... I've struggled to see the danger of Hegelianism, yeah. ex- again, in and of itself, outside of Marx's co-opting of it. Yeah. And so I don't know if you can help me out with understanding well, it a little bit better. I can take a shot. I'm by no means an expert. Hegel is <laughs> difficult to understand, and I don't claim okay. exhaustive knowledge of him. Even when I say there's a hatred of history, he wouldn't have said that. What I'm trying to draw out is that I think it creates this, just psychologically, it creates a hatred of history and in the culture. So I think that to take a stab at it, you, he thought in triads, you know, he liked to think in threes. So even with a synthesis antithesis, he thought of that as idea uh, interacting with nature and particularly with the form of government, right? So mm-hmm. we have these ideal and then how it works out in the state. And then, you know, in that conflict and synthesis, you come up with a new thesis. But I think part of the problem is that I can say it akin to the Trinity. So the idea is... God the Father, the state is Jesus the Christ, and then the synthesis is the Holy Spirit, the interaction between the two of them. But even there, you mm-hmm. see the deification of the dialectic where the state becomes the savior. And that progression, I think what it doesn't do is it doesn't take into account the fact that there's a original sin and that our progress and through history is not by nature going to be towards God or towards betterment, right? Like that we can become a really horrifically disastrous society with millions of corpses stacked up in the 20th century. But that was, according to the dialectic, better than what it was before because it was working out those contradictions. And so it's detached, I think, from an objective form of a strong moral morality, which Marx certainly decoupled it from. And then you justify all those corpses because people become contradictions. So insofar as someone does not align with a party, they have to be either re-educated or destroyed. And so that all becomes justified for the sake of the synthesis. Is this part of the reason why when you say communism, you know, capitalists would point out that, you know, communism has created more deaths than, you know, any system of oppression in history. And it doesn't really phase people who are Marxists because, well, that's just part of the synthesis and and the progress. That's just part of the, the direction of history that it's supposed to happen. Doesn't matter that there's dead bodies. It's just part of the system. I think your Joe Schmo Marxist on the street would not say that, right? I think they would just say, no, those corpses are horrible. Those are atrocities. And, you know, they just weren't implementing 
Marx's thought correctly. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard a strong argument for what has gone awry. And I think this is part of the problem that every time it's implemented, it leads to this because there is something intrinsic in the, in the ideology that, that has to lead to it because it doesn't take into account human nature, right? So you're trying to re-engineer yeah. society in a way that doesn't work in harmony with a human person, but rather with coercion. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think that's giving me a better sense of, of where Hegel is. I mean, obviously it's going to, for me, at least it's going to be like a process of understanding how this is all played out. I mean, your work and, and the work of others has helped, you know, sort of contribute to that. And, and I've just always had that, you know, thought about Hegel and my wife and I have talked about this, you know, between ourselves about, you know, some of the troubles here and what's happening on a broader level. But you were going on next with Marx, who was a materialist, but he was very enamored with the ideas of Hegel. And how did he take those ideas and, and develop them into his theory? Yeah, so as a materialist, he applied it strictly on the economic level, and he identified three main obstacles to revolution, the faith or God, religious belief, the family, and private property. And I focus on my book more on the first two, just that I think it's really essential to understand that atheism was foundational to Marx's belief. He even writes about what we were talking about earlier about, you know, if we don't have the creator, then we become self-creators. You know, he has poetry and, and writings where he's talking about being the true son through which the whole world revolves, where each man kind of becomes his own true son. And it's very self-deifying. So God really becomes an oppressor according to his formulation because of the famous phrase, his famous phrase, the opiate of the masses, the opium of the people. Christianity gives you a context for our suffering and it makes us kind of more willing to accept our lives and accept our circumstances that, you know, we're told that in suffering well our circumstances, that's part of our, that can be part of our yeah. closeness with Christ. But no one revolts because they're suffering well their circumstances. You have to be suffering poorly your circumstances. You have to be enraged by your circumstances. And so he creates this kind of contra-evangelical message not to spread the good news to people that there's joy and that they are loved, but rather that they're oppressed, that they're hated, and that they're actually miserable even if they think that they're not. And you see this today very much in the woke movement, raising consciousness is from that very concept. So secondly, the family. Well, I think on multiple levels, the family is an obstacle to revolution. One, because family is oftentimes your introduction to God himself, but also because the family gives some privileging by its own very nature of the people within the family. It makes your duties particular. So I have a duty to my child before I have a duty to the child across across town, right? We have a hierarchy of duties, but this is an obstacle to an ultimate communist state where no one belongs to anyone. We, you know, can be with whomever we want. My children can be ra- are not mine. They're raised by the state and our obligations are yeah. first and foremost to the common, to the community, to this, you know, that socialism. Yeah. So he believed that this revolution was inevitable, that if you could convince people enough of their misery, the workers, that they will rise up and revolt. The revolution did not happen. And a lot of German Marxists were really frustrated and started an institute for social research, which became known as the Frankfurt School, which matriculated to be adjacent to Columbia University in 1935. And they, along with Antonio Gramsci, understood we have to broaden the revolution beyond economics. We have to mm-hmm. divide people in further levels. This has to be about man versus woman, this, yeah. you know, it's homosexuality, eventually came gender. Racism certainly was one of their original points of division. And then we fought on various levels of society and in, in media, in movies, in art, in literature. 
you know, that every institution should be an avenue in law, every institution should be an avenue to seed revolution rather than expecting it to be violent. And on the streets right now, it's going to be the long march of the institutions. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the fruits of that bear out. And oh, of course, in the academy too, that was, that was intensely has been fought. <laughs> That's one that no one forgets because it's very, very present and very front and center in a lot of ways right now. Although I think the front and center is the post-academic experience that a lot of people have gone through, which is what we used to call real life. To just comment on this for a second is that, you know, when when we hear things that were sort of fringe and like far out there and like, oh, they believe that gender is fluid or whatever, it's like, oh, you know what? You know, when they get out into the real world, they'll adapt and adjust. And I don't think a lot of people who made that proclamation realize that in 15 to 20 years that they would be creating the real world. Like they would be the ones who were in charge of managing companies and owning and starting. And, you know, so it's interesting that that has been the experience. And now I think we're seeing some of the fruits of that, which I, I want to talk about a little bit later. In the Frankfurt School, though, I think you called it sort of one of the the, the pinnacles of their or maybe... um I don't know what the words you use, but their mainstay legacy is what we would call critical theory. And critical theory is then branched off into a lot of different things like critical race theory. But you could kind of turn a critical theory into everything. And that, of course, as we talked a little bit earlier about postmodernism, sort of pairs up pretty nicely to be a very destructive or deconstructive force in the academy, in race relations, in gender understanding, identity, the family. I used to think that a lot of the criticisms from the right in the political spectrum about some of the further left, like edgier stuff, was a little bit overblown until I read things like stuff from 60, 70, 80 years ago that sort of wanted and planned for this to eventually happen over the course of a couple generations. And, you know, when you talk about, I think you talk about this where there's a generational lag, I suppose you could call it, where it's infiltrated in mentally or institutionally or intellectually in one generation. And about three generations later, it's sort of on the streets. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's really effective. Even what you're saying about the campus and how we just think, well, people just get in the world and then they'll disabuse themselves of all these weird ideas. In the meantime, yeah. even those of us who, you know, if we weren't intensely in that environment, that sort of academic environment, say we went to a classical school or say we just, you know, I don't know, didn't go far in a yeah. we're still being inducted into this ideology through the movies we watch, through the TV shows we watch. I mean, once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. And then that creates a society where, like, you know, that generational lag, you know, then you're growing up with kind of these gentle, like, kind of seeds of seeing the world differently and seeing, you know, that the hero of the story is always the one who is, you know, kind of the societal freak and then learns to embrace his freakiness. And, you mm -hmm. know, these little things that seem innocuous that actually have elements of truth, right? You know, if you grow up and you've got weird freckles or, you know, you've got a disability or something or you're missing, I don't know, a finger, I don't know. It's good to learn to be yeah. okay with that, you know, that that could be a good message. But the sheer ubiquity of that message repeated over and over again, you start to see, and then now they're more yeah. old with it. Now you can see in kids' movies, I've taken my kids to a couple movies and been like, wow, I can't believe how on the nose this yeah. is and just how they're not really hiding it anymore. And why would they? You know, if I were in Hollywood, I'd probably be trying to seed subtle messages of virtue and maybe a, a Christ-like story. You know, if you truly believe this, you want to seed it into the next generation. But so, yeah, I think all of those things together kind of 
converge to create acceptance of things that we wouldn't have thought acceptable. And, you know, when you think about, talk about reading the literature from 60 or 70 years ago, it's so bizarre because I think sometimes I'll hear, hear the same thing where people think, you know, this is overblown. This is kind of conspiratorial. They said they were going to do it. They said this is what they believe. They organized schools and institutions, lesson plans around all these ideas. They put in the media and now we're mutilating children's bodies. You know what I mean? Like, how did we get to this place and think that that's... Well, and they mentored the people who became influential later too. Yeah. Like, it's not just like, oh, hey, these ideas are somehow connected and we're connect- you're connecting dots that are like possibly tenuous. It's more like, oh, no, so-and-so mentored Angela Davis and so-and-so, and Angela Davis was a graduate student of so-and-so and uh, I don't have all the names. Yeah, and, yeah. I don't have their family tree. They, I can't call them a family tree because they don't like family, but um, <laughs> I, I, I have the tree, <laughs> right? Um, uh, of the, yeah. I don't have the tree, I should say, in my mind, but like, it's not like you're just connecting these random dots. And, you know, to your point, it's also not like you're just randomly picking somebody who recently said something outrageous on Twitter, right? This is academic literature. This is stuff that's quoted. This is not just, you know, obscure stuff that a right-wing hack is going to just like dig up and be like, hey, look, someone said this back in 1868. And like, no one knows who that person might be. But no, these are all these are all people that if you study the left and you study who they are, they actually look up to these people. Yeah. Or they speak positively of them in that way. And so these are the, what I think you call them militant true believers, the ones who are sort of, you could say, indoctrinated into this or they've embraced it. They make a case for it. They tell others about it. They're evangelical in that way about it. And and so that becomes problematic on its own because they enter the church. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm Protestant. I don't know. Has this has this affected the Catholic church in a way that I feel like it's affected the, the Christian left in Protestantism in the mainstream? Yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah, I don't know how to compare one from the other. It seems to me that they've both been greatly affected. You know, there's Catholic schools that are bringing in DEI experts and, you know, using casually using phrases like all cops are bastards to students. And, um, you know, there's a notable Catholic university that is asking the freshmen to, you know, pledge their allyship with, you know, a pin on their, you know, with like a rainbow pin. And this is very bizarre, but certainly it's in evangelical schools too. I think it's not, not discriminating and it's, desire to corrupt both. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of social pressure by a lot of... I mean, some schools... I mean, I know local Christian private schools that some are a lot more inclusive and accepting and have done things like remodel bathrooms so that everything is just single stall so they can avoid, you know, that whole debate of who's allowed to go where into the bathroom. And then there's some schools that are like, now we're just going to take the traditional stance and, you know, those schools are also thriving. And... I think there's a lot of social pressure by people because you don't want to be seen as bigoted, even though that word is now meaning is sort of like the word literally, right? Like a decade ago, literally became used as metaphorically. Now bigot means the opposite of what a bigot is. You don't want to be seen as a bigot. You don't want to be seen as somebody who's intolerant or just judgmental and so forth. And so you sort of make space for people. And in some ways, it's like, well, that's that's okay. You know, Jesus made space for a lot of people and loved them. And we can do likewise. But at the same time, it's almost like, making somebody wear a pin or forcing people into like, it's almost like they're funneling them into this ideology. There's probably another word for funneling. Well, yeah. <laughs> that I mean, we can think the, of the problem with the allyship is that this is not for the sake of 
loving an individual who's struggling with something or loving, you know, telling people that they are, have human dignity. It's not about human dignity. It's about human deification. It's about accepting and aligning yourself with mm. things that are a lie. And so one of the distinctions that I try to make for myself and just when in conversation with other people is that the Christian has a call to love the person and resist the revolution. And to me, I can separate those things, right? Mm. So I have friends who live very different lifestyles and have very different beliefs than I do. And I don't bring this stuff up to them. I mean, they're kind of like becoming more and more aware of, even they always knew I was conservative, but they're now they're more aware, aware of it because I've become more public. And so there can be some, you know, a little, you know, strain here and there where we have to just kind of remind each other, love you, I love you too. But I don't think that it's hard to love the person and still feel like you can fundamentally deeply disagree with that person, right? I mean, someone who hates the Catholic mm-hmm. Church or is, you know, an atheist... I have friends that would, you know, think the Catholic Church is bigoted. I don't take that personally. I mean, I think that I just think that they're wrong. But, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't think that they hate me. They can always point to a Catholic who is, right? Like, <laughs> that's yeah. not, that doesn't describe you and it doesn't describe what yeah. your, your faith is. So the distinction I would make for the schools is that, you know, I think that there's, we should never, you know, souls in it would say, you never let the lie live through you. You never participate in a lie. Mm. So I wouldn't put my pronouns down somewhere. I took my daughter to the doctor's office and they said, asked for her pronouns. And I said, she is a girl, you know, so I'll say something that is true, but I'm not going to participate in a sham, you know, that a sham that is not just awkward and fringy and weird, yeah. but a sham that's actually leading to people who are hollowing out their bodies. Yeah. <laughs> this is utterly destructive. And I think that with the weaponization of our fear of being called intolerant or bigoted has been effective. And one of the best things we can do is to stop being afraid of that, you know, I accept that probably someone's going to call me a homophobe or a bigot or, you know, or a transphobe or whatever. But that's okay because I know it's not true. But I can't let that fear of that accusation rule my Mm. life, right? Because then I won't be able to do anything. And they'll say, you know, everything is racist now. There's an article, think piece saying the farmer's market is racist. (laughs) You know, what are you going to do with that? And the irony is that it dilutes real racism, right? Like if everything becomes racist, then you, how are you going to address a real act of racism? So... Yeah, I just think that the more we can kind of separate those things in our minds and not be afraid of what is an unjust accusation. There's a lot of whiplash, I think, that a lot of people who are more conservative politically have had because for years, I mean, we've heard this a lot. It's like for years, not thinking about race was was like, you know, you were not a racist, right? Like you, colorblindness was not, was not being racism. And now it's like almost the opposite, right? right. And yeah. there's something to be said for... We've talked about this several times here. Like, there's a grain of truth in just about everything that they have to say. And it's like, they make that the whole thing. Like, I can say, hey, you know what? I see a black person. I can't pretend I don't see them as a black person. And I can't pretend to say, oh, well, they're just like me. Well, that's, I could see that that could be racist and thinking, oh, well, I got to not see that they're black and just assume that they're like me. Because I could see that that's sort of racialized, racist, whatever it might be. But it's almost like we have to, like, it's the push to make this about everything that is part of the movement. Like you said, you can love the person, but hate the, what is it, hate the revolution. Yeah. And it's almost like you realize that there is something, something deeper going on. And again, that goes back to one of the reasons your book really stood out for me is that you had that deeper going on inside of you, your faith and where your framework of an incarnational view of life that was able to see this and say, no, no, there's a handful of things here that are that are worth saying, yeah, no, we can love people, but like, no, this is a movement that's going in a different direction. The The whole idea of tolerance is like thrown out the window at this point. And we can't be tolerant of people who are intolerant or something, which is kind of crazy. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I think tolerance was sort of a Trojan horse to get to a place of deep intolerance. <laughs> James Lindsay actually has a great point he makes about this, the colorblindness thing, where he says, Martin Luther King Jr., he had this famous speech where he said over and over again, I am a man. I am a man. And that he was using it in a universal way, not to distinguish himself from women, but just to say, I am a human being. Yeah. I'm a human being. This is why racism is wrong. This is why racist laws are wrong. And this is why, because we are brothers. And the shift is that, you know, he was operating, he believed in natural law. So he believed that there's subjectivity to human nature. And as Christianity would teach, our very identity is in relationship to love, to God himself. That gives us that gospel message to spread the good news. But what has happened is that with critical race theory, we've shifted it to where we are not defined by love, but as I was saying earlier, defined by oppression, defined by hate. And so our point is to define ourselves center where we sit on the dividing line of oppression, either as perpetrator or as victim. And then you center that. So now critical race theorists will say, I am not a woman. I am a black woman. I'm not a woman who is black. I am a black woman because the blackness Mm -hmm. is even more important and more central to my identity than the womanness because it is a further Mm. category of oppression. There was a statue of Padre Serra that was being taken down in my town a couple years ago in the 2020 hate statues (laughs) revolution. And I remember when the city council women said when they decided to take the statue down, she said, I don't have joy. I have black joy. But it's that, you know, where we can't even have a common experience of joy. We can't reason together. We can't have a universal friendship. And even with the colorblind thing, I mean, of course, I know when someone is a different nationality or race or sexuality or whatever. I know we all know all these things. It's not that we're pretending not to. But the process of friendship is that, you know, I begin with a new friend and think, wow, this is my friend, Mary. She's blonde and she's beautiful and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then after a while, you get to know each other. She's just Mary and I know her soul, right? I know, oh, she has this funny laugh and oh, she deeply desires longing, longs for a husband. Oh, you know, you start to see the deeper aspect of the human person. Those things melt away. And I think that is, even that is an obstacle to revolution, you know, really is built on rupture and division. I talked about in the book, I think also how, why can we be transgender but not trans race? Because eliminating distinctions amongst men and women creates division amongst men and women because men and women ought to treat, yeah. behave differently with each other. And it's the opposite with race. Reifying division between the races creates division because the races don't imply that we ought to be. I can be just as good of friends with a black woman as a white woman. But it'd be weird if I were just as good of friends with a man as I am with my girlfriends, right? Like I've got my husband, he's my best friend. I'm just going to have this intimate, good friendship with another man. There's a propriety there. Yeah. What are we doing in schools? Like in schools, there's this bizarre trend of we're desegregating dorms by sexes and resegregating them by race. I don't know if you've been following these stories, but a lot of schools are starting. I've I've noticed a few and we've covered them. Yeah, it's, Um, uh, it's, uh, there's that meme where the guy's just shaking his head with his eyes, like blinking a few times. Did I see that right? And that just comes to mind with all of these things. I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, this is just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, it's not an accident. It's actually the point, I think, of this movement. It's, it's always about rupture, division, you know, dividing people by category and interpersonally. Yeah. Well, I think that this might be a good point to pivot on when we talk about intersectionality. We can maybe talk about what whiteness is. Actually, before we pivot to the sexual revolution aspect of this, I do want to ask, talk a little bit about whiteness. It was new to me about a year ago when I heard what white supremacy or what whiteness meant was not about skin color. <laughs> that it had to do with ideas. That it had to do with 
Well, I don't know. I mean, how would you describe it when, if you were to hear the term, you know, whiteness or whiteness studies? Like, what does that mean when you when you see that? I mean, I think whiteness has become the ultimate catch-all for systemic oppression, right? Mm. The one thing that we have to kind of, it's like the patriarchy, right? Smash the patriarchy and smash whiteness. But the bizarre thing is that there's a whole host of weird consequences that the ideology presents to us because of that premise. So like DEI experts are, it was in the Smithsonian, there was a chart about whiteness and, you know, they'll say really racist things like politeness is a white virtue, being on time is a white virtue, hard work is a white virtue, objective reasoning is a white virtue. So all these things become white. In other words, they become bad, right? And it serves well the revolution. There was, um, I don't know if you saw What is a Woman, but there's this interaction Matt Walsh has with a college professor. And he says, I'm just trying to figure, Matt Walsh says, I'm just trying to figure out what's true here. And he said, that feels very transphobic and appeal to truth. You know, that object, even, you know, it appeals to truth now. I, is white. I have seen that clip. I haven't seen the whole thing, but I've seen that clip as of when we're recording this. I've only seen that clip. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that's, sort of, that's crazy to me. Yeah. But it's also deeply racist. And one of the more serving things about it to me is that what is it telling kids who are black? It's saying, oh, I'm not able to be as polite. I'm not able to be on time because of my skin color. I can't work very hard. I can't understand what's really true or I can't argue from a point of objective truth. It's creating a system of despair that I think really serves the revolution because if yeah. you feel like you can't do anything to pull yourself out of your your circumstances, if there's no hope, if the, everything is about the oppression that's outside of you that you can't control, the only thing you can do is fall into a place of despair and then rage, right? Your own, those are kind of your only options. Yeah. You're like, my life is awful. I can't do anything to change it. It's because of these huge invisible forces around me that just have to be toppled, you know? Well, and then you're expected to fall in line with whatever forces are happening here. Like we're talking about the revolution and how, you know, we have all these people that are well-intentioned. That's the other type of woke, right? They're just well-intentioned and want to do right by people, but they're being swept up in this revolution and it's like just fall in lines, you know, comrade or, you know, whatever the situation is. It's not overt. I mean, it is just people like you and me, we kind of see this happening. I would want to ask though, maybe to be a, a little bit, to give a little bit of deference to the position of the outlook that other people have. So like, to what extent do these, some of these categories like black or female or homosexual correspond to something that like resembles the ability to have a useful vantage point that we should be considering? So I'll take politeness and being on time and how people often talk about how, well, being on time and being just kind of going by the clock, which is something I very much value. I mean, you and I couldn't have had this conversation if we didn't agree to a specific time, right? And and have and a specific allotted amount of time, right? And there's all kinds of, you know, factors that go into like, things can't happen if we don't be on time, right? But at the same time, I'm thinking, oh, well, okay. So white people, you know, just for the sake of the discussion, white people really value being on time and sort of running by the clock and, you know, sort of the old train station mentality, right? I can see why that is not necessarily a superior value to other ways of sort of time management. I mean, every time I've have experienced or have heard about experiences in other cultures where missionaries go and they're like, yeah, we just have church in the morning and we just kind of, when everybody shows up, we just start. And there's something a little exotic about that. It's like, oh, well, that must be nice that they can do that and things. And I realize that <laughs> it's a different culture and I understand that it doesn't make it right or wrong. But in some ways, I feel like just because we believe in something that is absolute truth and that there are ways of doing things that seem to work, that they're, 
we can risk putting away the valuation of someone's critique of it. So, you know, being on time is an easy is an easy one. I think I'm assuming maybe not. Maybe you can, you know, counter with something here that I don't think being on time is inherently superior in a number of ways. I do believe it scales really well, you know, for the masses amount of people to agree on being on time. But Anyway, back to the question. I mean, is there is there usefulness in seeing the vantage point of somebody who would say, hey, I am a black female and I see things differently here? How much of a contribution to the truth in a conversation are they going to have because of that? Well, there's a couple of different things you're asking. So one, I would say, I fundamentally reject the idea that being on time has anything to do with our skin color. I think that we could say there are cultural differences, like what you're talking about. So, but I wouldn't say that that's skin, like, for example, my sister-in-law married a man from Africa. They live in Maine. They're raising three children who are, you know, they're half black, half white, but they have black skin. They're raising them to be on time. <laughs> they're raising. So I, I don't think it's a skin color thing. I think it could just yeah. be, maybe there's an American, I think maybe what you're saying is that there's an American, there can be an overemphasis to the disregard of other without balancing with other virtues. So like as a mother, if I found, if I tried to stick to a strict time schedule, it was kind of part of my children because I had babies and toddlers and this, you know, I can't be so rigid and makes me a bad mom, overly orderly. But that's not a rejection of one particular virtue. That's an inability to balance virtues, right? That virtue should mm. take in the whole scope mm-hmm. of virtue in, with integration. So I think it's not that punctuality is not a virtue. I think it's that it can't be prized over other things that ought to be weighted alongside of it. But I do think that punctuality is a virtue. It shows respect to the other person. It shows respect to order. It just can't be taken in isolation. But the other thing I would say is that I think maybe I do want to give credence to another part of what you're saying, which is that, yeah, if every person, there's a truth that every person in their own suffering, in their own experience, have things to contribute that we can learn from, right? Like no one's walked in your shoes or my shoes or someone else's shoes. And if you have lived through, you know, racial prejudice in this country, you know, which I'm sure most people have. My mom is an Asian immigrant and she experienced racism when I was a little girl. And I remember that very vividly hearing things that she'd experienced. So yeah, you have a perspective that other people, I, I, you know, I am half Asian, but I look like a white woman. So I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what it feels like to wonder if a policeman is pulling me over because of what I look like or because of some infraction. You know, I don't know. I've never experienced that. So there's a, a real truth there. But I think that in a way that that's a truth of the human experience, right? I mean, if say you're a white man who grew up in, you know, a very poor, abusive home, you know, you have something, you've got some experiences of suffering that maybe a wealthy black man that you befriend later in life hasn't experienced, right? Mm. I just think it's an oversimplification to say that because of my skin color, I can't speak about things. You know, this one thing to drive me crazy about the abortion discussion too. You know, women will say, unless you have a uterus, you can't have a voice. Yeah, right. Like, well, I yeah. was saying that on social media the other day and I said, okay, well then you're a man, I have a uterus. So I should be able to tell you that abortion is taking <laughs> in life and you have to defer to me. <laughs> Not to mention a statistic that a lot of people don't know is that when you poll men and women, men are have a slightly higher majority of being pro-choice than women. And so... Like yeah. people, you know, women who are pro-choice are often like, well, if, you know, this is because of the patriarchy, it's like, well, actually, you know, if we just go by those statistics, you're in a lesser majority than than men. But yeah, well, that's a, I can, uh, for the few minutes that we have here, talk about something here that's, of course, related to abortion. And that is, of course, the sexual mores and ethics that have happened, that have seemed to shift from, I guess, one of, when I was growing up, 
in the nineties, there was a lot of, there was a lot of like, you know, we need to be permissive and there's a lot of pushing of promiscuity. I think the scandal in the Clinton administration sort of opened up a discussion about what it looked like for teenagers to experiment with each other on, you know, with things. And I didn't really focus on what was happening in the culture broadly, you know, as I was, you know, in my 20s, graduating college and getting married and just sort of starting my own family. And now I'm sort of looking back at some of these things and and sort of the trends here. There's a lot going on now that I have kids and I'm paying attention to it that my kids are being exposed to or they could be exposed to. My kids aren't. My kids could be exposed to it. Kids my age are being exposed to a lot of these things. And I used the word funneling earlier. There's another word we could probably use that will get us kicked off of YouTube, I think, so we I can know, maybe avoid it. But um, <laughs> everybody knows what we're talking about. I remember reading an article or just reading somebody comment on the use of this word that people on the right are using to accuse teachers of trying to get kids funneled into a certain way of being sexually or just being open to any way of being sexually, right? And the left is using, and it seems that the media narrative is that the right wing is setting up the concept and it's a conspiracy theory. And I feel like that's a way of framing the narrative in such a way that is like, oh, well, if we can make them look like conspiracy theorists, then we can sort of write them off, right? In the same way that they do with the term racist. Totally. But I can't, after reading what's happening, after hearing stories from Douglas Murray, James Lindsay, a lot of these people who are really doing academic work, explaining what's going on. Like, I can't see this any other way. Like, how on the earth is this not preparing kids to be open to just anything sexually at an early enough age to where it's very, very disgusting? And beyond that, it's actually, like, dangerous. Yeah. I don't know what comments you have there yeah. in that regard, but it it seems like this is... It's gone too far, even by the sort of promiscuous standards of secular culture. Yeah, yeah, no. And I think that there's some people, uh, you know, even the LGBTQ movement that are kind of giving pushback to their own community because of how far it's going. But this is one of the hallmarks, I think, of ideology is that it's denial. No, we're not doing this. And then it's, you know, I didn't make up this stuff. I think I can't remember which writer did. No, we're not doing it. And yes, it's good that it's happening. You know, that's the combination. It's like, no, we're not. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. And induce uh, gender ideology. And no, we're not doing this. Not to be, you know. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're mainstream, or not mainstream, yeah. but very high profile academic articles talking about how exposing children to kink is good. You know, there's something in the Washington Post, a woman wrote a think piece about, it's good for my kids to see kink at pride parades, you know. Like half naked men with like, uh, what do you call it? The the violent kind of, I don't remember, you know, whips and stuff like that. BDSM. Um, yeah, there you go. And I go into that in the, about the book that the if you really understand that ideology, innocence itself is something to be corrupted. It ought to be corrupted because children being innocent of alternative fringe lifestyles is perpetuating a, a hegemony. It's perpetuating like a, that mm. there's a fault way of being, a normal way of being. And that perpetuation is oppressing people who are on the fringes. And so you have to disabuse children from their innate discomfort. And that's why we're seeing all the transgender story hours and transgender dances in schools. And we're teaching kids how to twerk. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's so bizarre. And I think almost to the point where most people would be like, that can't really be happening, but it's kind of exploding. But it's not bizarre if you understand the point of the movement, you know, that they really think that children, that it's a process of repression, that they're not being exposed to the stuff, that yeah. they're 
they'll be more free and they'll be happier and they'll be more fulfilled if they are opening themselves to polymorphous types of sexuality and perversion. Yeah, it's really disconcerting. And I think what makes it, in some ways, I feel like what's even more disconcerting is the effort to sort of cover it up, (laughs) cover up that it's happening. Or make it seem like the right is just going apoplectic and that we should just ignore them because they're just raving about something they don't understand or or they're picking, you know, random examples or 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 whatnot. The angst that it creates in a lot of people like parents, I mean, there's on that particular level, parents can actually probably take action locally, they can object, they can pull their kids from the school and that kind of thing. But when we think about fixing this in a broader level, I mean, what is your broad advice or what do you have to say about what does it what does it mean to fight this? Because I have often despaired of this that we're just waste. We're so late to this game. Like there's so much. It's like again, like we're six decades or more into it being really sort of settling in and infiltrating. And now all of a sudden it's like we're fighting a whole different game here. This isn't just culture war. This is something way deeper than that. And so anyway, I don't know if you can leave us on any note of hope. No. <laughs> um, or or what, what do you have to say about what Christians should do to fight and resist? Well, I mean, I, I do have hope because it seems like a lot of people are waking up to all this, right? There's, I mean, a whole host of, I think people are left, in, uh, you know, across the spectrum, not, not just religious people, not just people on, that are identified as conservatives. There's a lot of progressive parents who you attack some of your kids and you're attacking something very primordially like waking a, a yeah. monster, right? Like people do not want to see their kids manipulated. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of hope even in that, that that is becoming something that is a mechanism for raising people's awareness to how deeply fraught this is and how entrenched it is. How we should fight, I think we have to have broad coalitions, right? I think we need to join arms with parents of all stripes people of goodwill, of any, no, you know, not be sectarian, not be caught up too much in our little bubbles, the Catholic bubble, the evangelical, or the, you know, just that we are conversing across the board with people who are like-minded, feminists who are, you know, who are against, you know, puberty blockers and children. There's a whole host of feminists who are fighting against that, the eradication of women. So I think linking arms is important. But generally, I think, you know, we have to fight on three levels, spiritual level, first and foremost. I think we should be praying, deeply praying. And I don't say that as a easy out, but rather that, I mean, as one of the hardest things we can do. It's really hard to actually pray for a long time. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to just meditative prayer. You know, yeah. we reject silence. You know, that silence is uncomfortable. We want to check our phones or, you know, they, but we need to be deeply, deeply praying. But the political, practical level, I think has to be, you know, first and foremost, that we are no longer able to have our compassion weaponized against us that we're not afraid to speak because one of the things I tell myself is the consequences of not speaking out to me, I think are way worse than the consequences of whatever might happen for speaking out because we know we don't want to look down the road 20 years from now and be like, why didn't we fight harder? But then thirdly, I think that we need to be promoting positive visions of what the good life is, right? So new culture, part of my job is we write these books called Theology of Home with beautiful images of family life and meditations on the beauty of, you know, taking care of children, all these things that have been kind of ridiculed as maybe, you know, not as good or less than or kind of, you know, humiliating or, you know, you're missing out on your career. You know, those things are actually really beautiful, nourishing and deeply human. So I think, you know, on various levels, we need to be promoting, you know, the positive life that people are looking for so that we're not just always reacting against something. We're actually like, here's a positive vision of what human beings desire 
that won't be fulfilled by ideology or division or politics or hatred, but actually deeply human. And it's bigger and broader than this reductive kind of partial truth of ideology. Yeah, well, thank you. Where can people find you online? There's, I mentioned your website earlier on, but that was an hour ago. So where can people find you online? And yeah. I've, yeah, I've got a website where I try to stay with all my articles. Whenever I publish an article, it's just my name, noelmaring.com. The other website I edit for is theologyofhome.com. We have a lot going on there with a daily aggregate of emails and news, house tips, you know, religious fruit, mm-hmm. food for the soul type stuff. And then I'm on Twitter. I don't know. You can find me on Twitter too. I don't tweet a ton. But. You seem really excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just not great at Twitter. I don't. I don't do it a ton, but I try to put my articles on there. So, yeah, yeah, right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is a little bit of an extended episode than normal, and it's an important conversation. And Noel Baring, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 